Hot fudge love, chocolate covered. Hot fudge love, cherry ripple. Kisses, dishes, knishes, nutritious. This is, this is. No, no. Hot fudge love, cherry ripple kisses. Lip smacking, back slapping, perfectly delicious. What's the matter, honey? Did you know the average movie costs way more than you'll probably ever make in your entire lifetime? Movies are an expensive business, and when they crash, they crash hard. But why'd they fail? Was it bad timing, a bad film, or just bad luck? Let's take a look and try to see where it went wrong, if you could have seen it coming, and what wounds turned out to be fatal. I'm Matt. I'm Steve. And this is the Autopsy Report. So, Matt, uh, you fancy yourself a funny man, right? Um, sure. Sometimes, no. No, I don't. I assume you uh, have tried to tell jokes, though, at some point in your lifetime? Oh, every day I stay up all night. You just, like, sit in the corner moping, like, oh, I'm so broody. See, that's, that's mm-hmm. the secret of my Listen humor. To my emo. Is that I'm always just mopey, and people are like, that Matt. His self-depreciating humor is hilarious, <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's not humor. It's a cry for help. <laughs> I'm laughing at your cry for help right now. I love it. Uh, so tell me a time, though, where you did attempt to tell a joke or like pull a prank and it was a, a big old bust. Ooh. Which one? Am I right? <laughs> your life is like a uh, curb your enthusiasm. It's just a never ending train of embarrassment. There was, there was this one that stands out particularly because it ended up being so goddamn awkward when I thought it was going to be so funny. Um, I was I was a kid. I was maybe around like I don't know, 11, 12 years old. And I was I was with my buddy and we were waiting for uh, another one of our friends to show up. And they were like a, a very religious family. We should note. And the thing is, he was bringing his younger brother with him. And his younger brother like really never came along. And I don't remember why he was bringing him. But I was like, "Oh my god, we should we should freak his younger brother and him out." And I and we we're going through the drawers in my kitchen. And my grandmother, God rest her soul, uh, my mom's mother, she had a, a pretty um, crazy sense of humor. She preferred some perverted perverted jokes. Mm. And so in this one of these drawers, my mom had taken, like, do you know those old glasses you'd put on? Like the, the uh, what is that guy's name with the big nose glasses? Oh, the Groucho Marx? Yeah, it's kind of like the Groucho Marx glasses. But these ones were like a, a super adult version, and instead of a, a plastic nose, <laughs> oh, no. it had a giant plastic penis. Oh no! And I don't know why we had these in this drawer, but I find these glasses, and I'm like, oh my god! And I, this brilliant quote, brilliant idea strikes me, and I put the glasses in my oh, pants. No. Oh god! And I unzip my pants, so this big <laughs> fake plastic penis is sticking out of my pants. The doorbell rings. My other friend's like hiding, like spying because he knows this is going to be hilarious. <laughs> I open the door and there's my religious friend with his young brother and me going, hi, guys, standing in the doorway <laughs> oh, no. with this big plastic penis poking out of my pants. And his face just uh. sinks. He grabs his brother. He shields his eyes. <laughs> he turns him away. And I'm expecting like all this laughter. And then I'm just standing there. <laughs> realizing what's happening (laughs) and it was very awkward and we never talked about it again
Maybe your first mistake was not just wearing the glasses as they were. On the nose? Yes. No, see, I feel I like that would have been like, that would have been like, oh, okay. And then instead, like, you're like, almost feel like they think you're, they're actually, you're actually exposing yourself to them. The sad part is that the whole, the joke, like the punchline of the joke was, wouldn't it be funny if my penis was hanging out when I answered the door? <laughs> <laughs> Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be telling telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth. Telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, it's you've a, got it's bitter a black herbs. life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. Ishtar is the OG of box office bombs. Sure, it wasn't the first movie to fail financially and ruin a career or a studio or to make some executive contemplate a forward arm stand dive with a one and a half somersault twist right into the asphalt. That's a very complex way to jump off of a building. He was a diving enthusiast. Oh, okay. But Ishtar... Not going to win the gold that way. Ishtar did make the topic of box office bombs chic. I mean, you can't discuss the subject without Ishtar shoving its way to the front of the line and announcing itself proudly like the first patient at a genital warts doctor. Is that a thing? Like, is that just a doctor who specializes in genital warts? Yeah, and somebody's like, I was here first, damn it. My warts are the worst. It seems like a very, I don't know, it seems like a very narrow field to get into, just genital warts. You gotta do what you love, Steve. Do you think he owns a pair of the penis glasses with he uses genital them, warts on? He uses them for his... Uh, <clears throat> They're magnified so he can examine the genital warts. It's like, sure it would be easier without this big plastic penis in the middle of this. Ishtar came out in 1987. And stars Hollywood icons Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman playing an incompetent version of Simon and Garfunkel, who are so bad that somebody says, you know who'd love your music? People in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And instead of realizing that maybe that's an insult, they think, hey, now there's an idea. Let's go play there. So wacky hijinks ensue, and these bumbling wannabe musicians get swept up in a region full of political unrest. Steve, what did you think of Ishtar? Um, I thought it was a very weird movie. Uh, I don't necessarily think I liked it. Um, but just it's such a weird movie, <laughs> tonally, uh, and the comedy is weird, and the I, I don't know. There's some funny parts, but I just I didn't necessarily buy into all the rest of it. I actually surprisingly enjoyed ishtar i enjoyed it a good amount honestly it reminded me a lot of zoolander and that zoolander is like this is like a bizarre deliberately dumb and satirical uh comedy and it's one of those comedy films that when i first saw zoolander i was like this is stupid i don't understand it because it wasn't like widescreen type humor Mm -hmm. but then it like kind of clicks and then it makes sense and you realize what they're doing 
And uh, I don't think I would. I'm, I don't like Zoolander really, uh, but I don't think I would give Ishtar that much credit to like think that they knew what they were doing. See, I do. I think Ishtar. I think this humor. Like, if you, I think because I bet you a lot of people listening right now have probably never seen Ishtar or heard of it, or even or heard were of even it. born when it came out. And uh, and I think uh, I think if people watch this movie, its humor would be more in line with films that they're used to today. But I think back then it wasn't like that, so mm. it was different. But I I mean, what I really enjoyed about this movie, honestly, is we is it's about wannabe songwriters, and they're like terrible. Yes, but I thought I thought all the song parts were great. Like they have these like there's like parts where they're trying to like come up come up with songs, and they're singing lyrics. Like one of them goes. Saturday morning, the sound of a lawnmower touches my heart. <laughs> and it's like, they think these are great lyrics. They're like, oh, that was a good one. And then like they're sitting there and one of them goes, she said, come look, there's a wardrobe of love in my eyes. Take your time, look around, see if there's something your size. It's like, these are, they're r- ridiculous they lyrics. They are pretty ridiculous, yeah. But it's like, these guys think they're so good, and I it, I just found that hilarious. Uh, yeah, I, did, I mean, I found the songwriting parts to be pretty funny and entertaining, but I I don't know. I just the, I didn't like the characters very much. Um, I don't know. I have a problem with, like, characters that are too stupid to, like, have any realization i just i don't know it, it was hard for me to buy into yeah but you liked uh but you're a big anchorman fan i am I was complaining big, about those dumb characters i was very big anchorman fan but i feel like that movie is very clear about how absurd it is where this one it, i feel like it it tied it i don't know it's just the weird tone everything I, is off on it i definitely think this movie knew how absurd it was but we'll, I, I think we could touch on some of those more absurd moments later i don't know if warren Beatty and dustin hoffman knew how absurd it was supposed to be or the director. <laughs> they did because they played against type, though. Like they both played, yeah. like they played characters you'd think the other one would play. Maybe. I, I still just didn't buy into either of them. I don't know. So, I did fall asleep a little bit part of this movie, too. So. What's new? Yeah, right. Keep a count, guys. Steve falling asleep during movies. It's like an old fucking man over here. Suicide is sometimes hidden before authorities are called for insurance and embarrassment reasons. No one sets out to make a bomb. Unless it's uh, the producers. That's true. Yeah. That's a, but that's also that's, fictional. That's a good so, point. Yeah. And Ishtar, Ishtar was no different, though. Despite Columbia Pictures' uh, bizarre post-filming stance in this movie, which we'll get into later, uh, which may make you think they were setting out to make bizarre a bomb. Bizarre post-filming stance? That's, what it, who wrote this? Post-filming. Because it was before it I mean, came out, like, but after it filmed. It's like, uh, whatever. And during filming. Anyway, in the beginning, um, Ishtar was a deal pitched is too good to pass up to the studio. Um, even with the inherent uh, risk that this movie brought, which was kind of obvious from the onset. See, uh, in the early 80s, Warren Beatty was not only a Hollywood icon on the screen, he was a mighty gear behind it churning out successful movies from a variety of positions, actor, director, producer. Warren wore the big hats and he wore them that well. Uh, When Warren Beatty came to your studio with a movie project in hand, you'd be damn foolish to let him walk across the street to another studio. At least that's what uh, head of Columbia Pictures guy McElwain? Elwain, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, That's That's what Guy thought. 
Well, it's good to have a guy named Guy. Makes it very convenient. Make me, hey, Guy. What if you're a guy that just comes up to people and says, hey, Guy? And then he's like, oh, yeah, what? I was like, no, I was talking about that guy. And then his name was also Guy, though? Oh, what? <laughs> there's too many guys. Is it Guy Ritchie and Guy McElwin hanging out together? Well. How am I supposed to greet either of them? This guy uh, is probably really old now. <laughs> he's probably dead. So while Beatty wouldn't be directing Ishtar, he would star and produce it. And uh, his co-star was none other than I mean, Dustin Hoffman. He might as well have been directing. We'll get into that. Uh, and I mean, Hoffman at this time, we all know Dustin Hoffman. His name still carries a lot of weight, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, at, uh, at this... Wait, has he been taken out yet by the Me Too movement? Or is he okay? I don't remember where, he's, where he stands Let's on that right now. Let's check the scoreboard. <laughs> no, it does. But um, Hoffman at this time was on... He was on NBA Jam levels of fire. Coming off I don't like that. I don't like this reference. NBA Jam in the 80s before video games like that existed. Come on. It's the t- references are timeless. <laughs> but Hoffman was coming off Tootsie, all right, in 1982, a film which won uh it, I mean, it was a film which was the second highest grossing movie of the year and was nominated for 10 Oscars. And he was coming off Kramer vs. Kramer in 1979, mm-hmm. a film which earned nearly $100 million more than his budget and nabbed nine Oscar nominations. That guy was an Oscar machine. Yeah, so I mean, Hoffman and Warren Beatty are super hot right now when, this, when Ishtar is being pitched. So you'd be a fool to not pass up this movie, which combines two of the biggest acts in Hollywood, both recent Oscar winners, because Beatty was also had some Oscars in his pocket. And this is going to be together for the first time. But the only hesitation with this project comes from Beatty's chosen director and writer, Elaine May, who was an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter in herself, also very well-known for her playwriting. Mm. But she had, a, she had a few reasons to give the studio's worry. Yeah. And uh, it's um. interesting, I think, because... I think a lot of the films we've t- covered, when we talk about expectations leading up to these movies coming out, a lot of them, like on paper at this point, before this stuff gets rolling, it looks good. Like yeah. There's not any like too much to doubt. But I think this is one of the first movies where we looked at where there was doubt right from the beginning. Yeah, there was a lot more red flags than oh. just like, ah, oh, this story kind of sucks, but we'll move forward anyways. And the big red flag was May. Yes, definitely May. And we're going to find out uh, all the history behind that. And there's a lot of it, folks. But so first, buckle in. Pop some popcorn right now. Because this, this is going to be a big one. It's going to be a long there's, one. There's a lot written about yeah. the, the failings of Ishtar. Longer than Matt's penis glasses. Those are mostly uh, more girth. Make the usual Y-shaped incision. Ishtar opened May 15th, 1987 and won the weekend, finishing number one. With uh, $4.3 million, narrowly, very narrowly, defeating its competition, which was an also debuting movie called The Gate, which uh, earned about 4.2. What was The Gate? Was that the the sci-fi movie? I believe it's a horror movie. A horror movie? The Gate, 19... Because there was like Stargate. Oh, okay. No, this is... Yeah, this is... 
definitely a horror movie. By the way, if you're curious, back in 1987, that $4.3 million that uh, Ishtar opened up with would equal about $9.4 million today. Ah, I was curious. So it's still, so the movie, you know, still would be about a $10 million opener. To kind of dig into that some more, uh, the climate of movies was very different in the 80s than it is now when we talk about movie success. Because you might have been thinking, well, $10 million doesn't seem that great. Because uh, nowadays, it's not because movies need to make so much money so quickly. Yeah. But when, the, but when Ishtar and the Gate dropped on May 15th, they pushed The Secret of My Success, a comedy starring uh, Michael J. Fox, to third place. And this was actually a pretty big move because The Secret of My Success debuted five weeks earlier on April 10th. And was the number one movie in the United States for five weeks until Ishtar and The Gate came out and both of them beat it. Narrowly, mind you, because The Secret of My Success still earned $3.9 million in its sixth week. Not far below Ishtar or The Gate. And uh, that's it's interesting to point out because that five weeks in a row, that record is, I mean, you think, to put that in like comparison, Black right. Panther just did five weeks in a row at number one and it was a big deal because nowadays that doesn't happen anymore. right i think before black panther avatar was the last movie oh wow okay yeah i mean i feel like up until maybe the mid-2000s and then i think maybe after avatar became like that weird template for like oh we need to make these giant movies that make billions of dollars and cost hundreds of millions of dollars uh, I feel like there was, it was more common for movies to stay up at number one for like big, like the big, big successful movies. Like I remember, um, like when Signs came out, that came out and did well, and then it like dropped a little bit, but then it had like a resurgence and jumped back to number one for a few weeks. And like, I feel like that was more common. There was more time for things to breathe up until I don't know, ten, fifteen years ago. Well, yeah, I think it's been slowly getting less and less and less, but lasting power is a, a very important part of the theaters, especially back then. And we are going to see that mm. here. But to kind of put things in perspective, if you're wondering, but how does Ishtar's 4.3 million um, stack up to the average at that time? Uh, in 1987, the most successful movie to come out that year was Three Men and a Baby, <laughs> which I found and it surprised me a little. <laughs> and uh, that movie opened to $10.4 million. So Ishtar is already about $6 million behind that opening. Fatal Attraction, which was the second most successful movie in 1987, opened to $7.6 million. Mm. Only six whole movies in the entire year uh, ended up cracking $10 million or more. So movies aren't opening nearly as huge back then. But the huge, huge difference is that movies back then had lasting power. Mm-hmm. And I, it... I don't know. There wasn't as much of a saturation with content media. Mm-hmm. So like you have whatever the big theaters put out or the big studios put out and they can keep them out there and you could watch some stuff on home video a little bit, but like there wasn't as much option. So they had a, a tighter control on it and they could be like, no, we're going to leave this in the theater for 10 weeks and you're going to go see it whether you like it or not. Yeah. And on that note, three men and a baby, uh, was in the, th- was, a. Uh... Three Men and the Baby made more than Ishtar's opening weekend. It made more than $4.3 million for 10 weeks. Man, 
It's Tom Selleck for you. In its 11th week, Three Men and a Baby would finally full, fall below 4.3 million. But it still stayed in the top five for 15 weeks. <laughs> Fatal Attraction was in theaters total for 26 weeks. And it, it took 11 weeks before Fatal Attraction made around Ishtar's opening weekend haul. But so as you can see, these movies are lasting a while. They're pulling in money consistently. What? What? Do you know who directed Three Men and a Baby? No. Take a take a guess. Well, I, I glanced over and I damn saw it. it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, you at home, tweet us at AT Report Pod and take a guess at who directed Three Men and a Baby. We'll wait. We'll just trust that you don't look it up on IMDb. And we'll wait. <laughs> Let me take a sip of my Starbucks Blonde Rose coffee while we wait for your tweets. This is a coffee break. Uh, but no, it was Leonard Nimoy. Uh, Leonard Nimoy directed Three Men and a Baby. That's. I don't uh, think I would have ever. I don't think I knew that he directed anything. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty shocking. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, you just think, oh, Star Star Trek, and that's it. But no, he d- directed Three Men and a Baby. I guess so. The most successful you. movie in 1987. So yeah, you, don't you fucking forget it. Yeah, I will not forget it. Good job, Leonard. Rest in peace. Ishtar, meanwhile, would not get the luxury of movies like Three Men and a Baby that got to hang around in theaters forever. Well, real quick, compare the cast. You got Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted Danson compared to Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. Hoffman and Beatty are way bigger. I mean... They're, they're coming off huge points in their career. We just talked about this. We did talk about this, but like Tom Selleck was a, was a big-time star also at that point, right? I'm not saying they're not big. Magnum PI, man. I don't think that's not nearly as big as Warren well, Beatty. I'm if you collect the three of them together to like equal the two of them. I mean, maybe maybe you have more TV power with these guys because Ted Danson, you know, cheers and uh, Steve Gutenberg. I don't know. I don't even know what to say about him. But maybe it's just the concept is better. That's the thing. Three men and a baby is like, ah, hilarious. Three men. I know three men and, and I love babies. Right, I don't yeah. understand what Ishtar means. <laughs> it sounds weird and foreign. I don't know if this is a mildly sexist comment Matt's making right now on commentary on the 1980s film audience. You tweet us and tell us. Only if you're from the 1980s. Though. Yeah, you only tweet us from 1987. But the big point here is that Ishtar did not get the luxury to hang around the theaters like all these other big earners would do. In its second weekend, Ishtar dropped to fourth place and earned $3.4 million. In its third weekend, it'd stay in fourth place but only earned $1.6 million. And then in its fourth and final week, Ishtar would make under $1 million and then poof, it was gone. It was pulled out of theaters in only four weeks. And just to remind you, the story of my success was number one for longer than that. <laughs> And Ishtar was already gone out of theaters. It would only end up grossing $14.4 million against a produ- uh, production budget that the numbers puts at $40 million. But a New York Times article that came out in 1987 reported that the budget was really $51 million. Either way, you fucked. Did, they, <laughs> what is, did we adjust that for inflation? Did we... I did not. Oh, okay, well... But uh, the inflation is a lot. It's a lot of money lost. <laughs> yes. 
Only four weeks, though. Why did the... You know, I bet they did. To save money, I bet they printed it on that, like, uh, the temporary film that, like, just dissolves after four weeks in theaters, running through the projector. It's a brilliant move. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, I feel like that would be money. more expensive. <laughs> some some fancy-ass film that dissolves. No, it just degrades really fast, and then they burn it for fuel. I don't know. Well, production budget, $40 million, $51 million, whatever, which one ends up really being. This movie was only supposed to cost $27.5 million. Man. And uh, just so you're aware, uh, Hoffman, Beatty, and the director slash writer, Elaine May, they received $12.5 million in salary. So there's a good chunk of that budget. That is there. an unbelievably large disparity that's a it's some pull man they, had they some call pull. a heavy above the line uh cost there a little, a little inside baseball for you above the line is a a film term for budgets where uh all all of the producers directors writers are above the line talent um everyone below the line is like the crew so when you have a heavy above the line it means you spent a ton of money on all those people at the top and then you know not as much below the line i mean they still spent millions of dollars but uh, yeah, that's but always that's kind of a red flag sometimes maybe on these like bigger studio pictures is not as much because oh uh because they're gonna that's have, where your talent is steve that is where that's your, talent, where your is. talent is. yeah and that's you're gonna spend a lot of money on your talent but no one's coming out to see craig the gaffer that's true <laughs> craig does great work <laughs> sorry craig but no one's coming to see you but without those hundreds and sometimes thousands of people below the line you can't actually make the film so it's a it's a and you know it's an interesting listen I'm concept. just saying I'm just saying the slaves make the pyramid but the pyramid isn't a picture of slaves all right it's a cool sphinx it's a cool pharaoh well, the, the pyramids aren't the, the sphinx the sphinx is not a but I, I I see what you're saying but yes that's comparing the film crew to slaves I mean that is sort of the indie film <laughs> film indie film world um, anyways we need to talk about all of the all of the hoopla in this movie. There's a lot of hoopla. There's been a lot of stuff written about what went wrong with this movie. Like I said, this is this is a prime example of a box office bomb that often comes up when this is is discussed. So there's a lot to talk about there. But before we talk about that, let's go through the movie and uh, we'll try to kind of try to keep it a little briefer. Yeah. Since there's so much other stuff to get into. The intact carotid arteries can be seen after removal of. So Ishtar, as we said, is about uh, some wannabe songwriters. And the movie uh, opens, actually. I like the opening scene of this movie. It opens with them kind of fiddling around on the piano, trying to trying yeah. to come up with a song, and it would end up being their big song. Like This is, the, this is the, what they think their masterpiece is going to be. But uh, the movie, you meet these songwriters. You see them kind of uh, struggling in some open mics and stuff. Uh, and you see how they meet and how they click. And um, I mean, and then you just see them going through these songs that I mentioned, you know, like the Saturday morning, Sound of Lawnmower, Touches My Heart type of lyrics. They're just like throwing out and they're like throwing out all these different lyrics, trying to find like stuff that hits and fits. And and there's a there's a there's a funny part where uh, Warren Beatty's wife ends up leaving him mm-hmm. because he's so fucking bad. Like she just she's just can't take it anymore. Is it because he's bad, or she just like 
or she's like, I can't take that he's going to keep doing this as a career. That's more of Hoffman's. Because oh. Warren Beatty's wife leaves them in a, after, in a scene after uh, they're like play, these two are playing their shitty songs together for a while. She just can't take any more. She gets up and walks away. And then Hoffman's all like, don't worry about it, bro. You know, Hoffman's like more cool and collective. And then like after you think like he's got his shit going on, he's comfortable with who he is. Then his girlfriend leaves him mm-hmm. and he has telling him that his life is a joke. Like direct quote, your life is a joke. <laughs> And then it's like hard cut. Now we're like, like at Hoffman calling Beatty. And now he's the one breaking down mm-hmm. with the roles now reversed. And there's a fun scene when Hoffman's on a ledge on his outside. I didn't of... find the scene fun. I, I liked it. I just thought that the whole thing was just over the top. See, that's the point. I don't know if it was the point. I don't know. I, it's like I, this movie's outrageous. It's like, I don't it's think like it's that it was ridiculous. supposed to be that outrageous. I think it's it is. not made Steve, the way you did not was. understand Ishtar. Apparently right? not. I could not glean the same respect for it that you did. So the apartment scene, for you people know uh, of what Steve thinks is outrageous or not, he, uh, he tells Beatty not to tell anybody. And then Beatty, of course, tells people. So he like shows up and he's trying to like talk him down from the ledge. And then, like, a bunch of people keep showing up, and it's, like, kind of, like, it's a joke you've seen before. I don't know if you've seen it before at this point, but it's, like, oh, here comes his, his preach. Yeah, his, like, right. His, it's, like, his oh, everyone's here. His priest and his mother and all these people, and they're, like, get off the ledge, son. Don't do it. Like, it's, it's me, Father Blah. Don't get... And he's, like, I told you not to tell anyone. And he's, as he's out on this ledge. But anyway, yes. so <laughs> these guys, uh, the only gig they could get is like a gig in Morocco. Their agent's like, you suck, but maybe if you go to Morocco, you could be lounge singers because no one wants to sing out there. And and so they're like, okay, fine. So they fly out there and they go from Morocco to... Or actually, I think they're trying to get to Morocco, but first they have to go through this fictional country called Ishtar. Is Ishtar a fictional country? I thought it was a hotel. No, it's a fictional country. Oh, okay. And, uh, and then... Like Ishtar is this country that's on. It, there's a lot of political unrest, and there's like rebels, and there's this girl that's like being hunted by them, and these two goofy characters get caught up in the whole thing, to kind of just throw a lot of stuff into a simple so- summer. Yeah, right. <laughs> and like the CIA is involved, and like they're trying to get these guys to feed them information, and this girl. Uh, played by uh, who's this, this actress, the main actress? Um, a something. Isabel. A John. A Johnny. Yeah, Johnny. She uh she runs into Hoffman and she convinces him to help her, and then later she runs into Warren Beatty's character and she convinces him to help her, and those scenes <laughs> are both like really strange. Yes, because they're very like the joke is like. The joke in these scenes is that she's like completely covered because you know it's the Middle East. Yeah, and they both mistake her for a boy. So the first time Hoffman's like, "I'm not gonna help you," you know, "f off," and then she like just straight up flashes on her tits. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, you're a beautiful woman. I will help you." <laughs> and then later, Warren Beatty like finds her in his apartment or something, or his hotel, and he starts fighting with her. He thinks that she's an assassin or yeah. something. And it's like this really awkward That's scene. real weird. Where he thinks, and he refers to her as a young boy. Mm-hmm. 
So he thinks it's like a, a, a teenage boy or something, but he's like holding her and he keeps talking about, oh, your, your, your body's so soft. And, oh, what are these? And he's like touching her boobs. And it's like really. Yeah, it's really weird. It's really weird. So he's like groping her and like, but he keeps, but he's like, so he gets like real sexually confused while he's getting turned on by this boy. And then she kisses him like to try to be like, look, I'm a girl. Quit. I'm a girl, idiot. And then, and then. He's so confused by this kiss that he just punches her right in the fucking face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's real weird. But anyway, so then she convinces ba- uh, Warren Beatty's character to help. So it's like you have both of these characters trying to help this girl, but also the CIA is trying to get them to help them. And they're getting mixed up in all these crazy antics. Uh, and there's another scene, which Steve will probably hate, but I thought was fun. <laughs> when uh, they're they're in the market and he like... He tells him to go, he's looking for this blind camel, which was like a code word. Yeah. But then he accidentally freaking buys a real blind camel. And then like the CIA, but also like these other spies, all these, and Hoffman, they're all following Warren Beatty's character. They all like trying to see what he's up to. And they're following ridiculously close yeah. and ridiculously obvious. And every time he turns around, they like all just stop and like look like they're doing something. Even though, like, some of them are literally one foot away from mm-hmm. him. And I thought that scene was, was funny. That was all right. That wasn't... I didn't hate that. Per se. <laughs> but, like, so these two are just, like... These two idiots are just kind of getting pulled along and used by these sides and don't really know what's going on. And eventually, like, both sides just want to wash their hands of these two dudes. And they send them into the desert on a lie. So they'll just die out in the middle of the fucking desert. Um, of course, it does not go down that way. Uh, Dustin, Unfortunately, Dustin Hoffman is mistaken for an Arabic, uh, uh sorry, Arabic <laughs> translator, and uh, I'm gonna get hate mail for that. <laughs> and he starts stammering off. Uh, he just starts stammering a bunch of gibberish in uh, a scene where, t- if that scene came out today, it would be called ridiculously racist. Yeah, and it would probably be like, yeah, it's probably true. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> they they were a lot more uh, lenient back in the day. Yeah, he just like starts like doing like gibberish to try to sound like he's speaking Arabic. Yeah, it'd be like if Steve started being like, "Look, I could I could speak Asian." Ching chong wing wong. That's about what I did. I just spent six weeks in Korea, so to pretend to walk around going, "Excuse me, ching chong." He did not make any friends. I did not. No. Um. Yeah, I mean, that scene was kind of funny, but it was also, like, one of those that was just so stupid that, um, I don't know. I just, I couldn't buy into it, but, I don't know. But they, uh... At that point in the movie, I'm just like, oh, this is what it is. Steve was sleeping. Let's all Pretty be, much, let's yeah. all be honest here. <laughs> he doesn't remember any of this. So they eventually, uh, they're delirious in the desert. They're crawling around. They, and then they find, uh... Like the whole time, everybody's after this map. Like that's what they're the, all these people, the CIA want them to find. All these people want this map. Yeah what what is the what is the thing? What is the MacGuffin in this? I don't even remember. Well, they wanted this map, and in the very beginning, unbeknownst to us, the girl hid this map, sewn into a coat that uh, she yeah. gave to Dustin Hoffman, who has been wearing this coat the whole movie, and nobody knew that this map was sewn into it. And then while they're crawling around in the desert. They finally realized that, oh, my God, the map's been on us the whole time. But what was the map for? And uh, I don't even fucking remember. Honestly. See, even you don't remember what the hell the, 
like the point of all their nonsense was. So we just were waiting for the songs. I watched those songs were good. I watched this like two months ago. Yeah, it's fair. It's been a while. So anyway, the girl has a change of heart. She comes back to rescue him from the desert. The CIA gives up uh, because they realize they they can't pretty much kill these guys without anybody noticing anymore. And so the CIA, in in order to like be like, hey, no, we never shot at any Americans. We don't know what you're talking about. We didn't do that. They agree to pretty much fund these guys, an album for these guys, fund a, a show for them that they could that they could put on. And then this, the the whole movie ends. They finally get to perform their own original songs in front of a, a packed audience, and it, like it's the audience is people that the CIA like forced to come there, mm-hmm. forced to listen. And then when they finish applauding, they for I mean when they finish playing, they force this audience <laughs> to applaud. And it's like they finally got their wish, and it's all like, just like all fake. <laughs> I, I find that I found that pretty hilarious. That, that's a that's the movie. That's a rundown of Ishtar. So, if, if, uh, I mean, if you heard that and you thought, "Oh man, this movie should have done gangbusters at the box office," then uh, I want to know what you're drinking. Tweet us at AT Report. And tell us what alcohol you're drinking. If you thought Ishtar sounded like it should have been a smashing success. Oh, I get it because they're smashed. Rectal temperature is another factor in estimating time of death. All right, Steve. So. We talked about uh, Ishtar the movie, but Ishtar the production is a whole different beast. Mm. That's very true. Where to even begin with the the production? Uh, oh, man. Um, I think I think when you talk about all this drama surrounding the production, um, first I'd be remiss not to jump back to a point that I left us hanging on earlier when I mentioned uh, Ishtar's failure to bring in money. And I mentioned how it was only in theaters for four weeks when a lot of other movies are in the theaters a lot longer. Yeah, well, we already decided it had the combustible film. That's correct. But just remember that. I'm going to leave you hanging on that note again. Mm. But we're going to get back to that that four weeks. It wasn't combustible film because it was that was a lie you were told. And there's there's more there's more to it. I was not told that lie, sir. I came up with that lie. I mean, that was that was a lie that was. Inceptioned into your brain as you slept yeah. by, by uh, Columbia Pictures. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the saga of Ishtar begins when uh, with Warren Beatty pretty much wanting to give Elaine May another shot at making a movie. Another shot, but this time, Steve, her shot was gonna be. It was gonna be her way. Her way. She can do it on her. What's the what's her the Mary, way? What's the Mary Tyler Moore song? Oh, I thought you were going to the. Olympus She's gonna bit. make it after all. Oh, I was thinking of My Way from Limp Biscuit. Why the fuck would I think, would you think My Way by Limp Biscuit? Because Limp Biscuit's the greatest rock band. Oh my god! Oh my god! That, please tweet us at that, and, and all your friends tell them to listen, and then send hate tweets at Matt for talking about Limp Biscuit. See, Elaine May was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, and she was a well-known playwright, and she had directed uh, a few movies in the seventies, and uh, but I think in nineteen seventy-six. 10 years before Ishtar even came out is perhaps where the story really begins. When May directed a film called Mickey and Nikki. And uh, because uh, it was troubles on, on this film, Mickey and Nikki, that really earned 
uh, may a bad and negative reputation with studios that, uh, that it soured her on filmmaking so much with how terrible Mickey and Nikki went that she never directed after Mickey and Nikki until Warren Beatty talked her into coming back for Ishtar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, do you, how much do you think it was him, her, him like talking her to coming back, or her like being like, "Hey, I'd love another shot. Help me out, bud." I think I don't know. I think it may have been weird I think, because I th- Warren felt like he owed. Yeah, he owed May because May did some uncredited rewrites on some of his movies, and then he won an Oscar, and and he felt like no producer ever gave her the uh, the freedom that she needed to succeed because she was very. Well, I guess maybe eccentric. I think it'll be interesting. Eccentric's a good word. It'll be interesting, Steve, as somebody who's worked on some films, low-budget films and stuff, mm-hmm. who this kind of stuff would probably be a nightmare to you. But it'd be interesting to see how you kind of think of uh, some of her antics. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, she was known to have an obsessive kind of behavior, and I think it's it, like some people kind of uh, vilify that. And I don't know. I wonder if some prejudice come in, come into play. Because I feel like some actors like a Fincher or a Kubrick, like they're known for doing like hundreds of takes and stuff. Yeah. And, so, and some people like like speak about that like they're almost enamored by it. Like they're such perfectionists and they just know exactly what they want from their craft. Mm, I mean, I think they they do acknowledge a little bit how insane that it is, especially Shelley Duvall uh, from The Shining. Um like I don't know, doing a lot of takes is a weird, is one of those weird things that sometimes feels like it's like a really easy way to be eccentric. I don't know, but especially like reading about how she was she was doing it, it felt like she had no rhyme or reason for it. Um, whether or not any of them else, any of the other ones do, but like, uh, I don't know. Like if you. If you just say, oh, let's just do another take without, like, any reason, like, no direction, you don't say anything, just like, yeah, let's just do another one. Like, the actors are, like, they're going to be like, well, like, what the what the fuck was wrong with the last one? Like, what like what do we need to do another one for? This isn't, like, a stage mm-hmm. play. And that is a great sign, or that's a big red flag, is that she has a lot of theater experience. And I've I've seen that before where when there's a lot of theater background, it becomes like, oh, let's just do another one. Like, do another one. Like, we, you know, we just keep doing it. And, like that's how we do it but like you're making a movie you just need to get it good once maybe twice give yourself some options and then move along you don't need to just keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again but she did like uh like this story from uh when she was shooting mickey and nicky when it said that may had three cameras running (laughs) simultaneously just running for hours hoping to catch spontaneous interactions. Oh, you want to talk about burning money. Just set <laughs> if you want to just put some film in the corner and light it on fire. That's essentially what you're doing right there. And the story is that a camera operator noticed once that they were still rolling after the actors had walked off set. So the camera operator called cut and then May rebuked him and said that uh <laughs> it was her job to call cut. <laughs> And why asking him why he called cut? And he said, well, because the actors fucking walked away. <laughs> and she said, yes, but they might come back. <laughs> so like, what? I want to know if she had a hat or one of those giant, like, old-fashioned megaphones, the little handle on it. Like, not the powered ones, but, like, just the big cone 
with a handle. I want to know if it said director on the side of it or if she had a hat that said director because it, that would fit very well with what it sounds like her personality is. So, yeah, she definitely had a bit of like a perfectionist control freak personality. And uh, when she, it ended up, when she turned uh, Mickey and Nikki, when she turned the film over to Paramount, she had shot 1.4 million feet of film. Oh. And for comparison, that's three times more film than was shot for Gone with the Wind, which is a much longer, <laughs> much, longer. much bigger movie than Mickey and Nikki. Uh, see, here's my, here's my thought. Um, and then we'll, I think we'll get into a little later about her connection to Mike Nichols and Dustin Hoffman, their connection. Um, Mike Nichols uh, is known to be a little bit of an eccentric director also, mm-hmm. especially on The Graduate. And she was actually like a small, tiny little bit role in that. And Dustin Hoffman was the star of that, obviously, if you don't know. Um, and I remember reading an article about like how much of like a struggle that movie was for him dealing with Mike Nichols and them like dealing with each other. And I wonder if... If she got a taste of that coming from a theater background and then getting a taste of Mike Nichols, maybe like being friends with him, she thought like, this is how I have to direct. Like I have to have like this crazy eccentric style and I have to like do all these things and be kind of um, weird without like having any, any reasoning behind it. Because you can talk about like David Fincher or Stanley Kubrick, but like Fincher did a ton of music videos and like did a lot of stuff to like build his career and get to a point where maybe he can justify it. Same with Stanley Kubrick. Like he was a studio director to start and did a lot of, he like came in on, uh, what was that one? Not Spartacus. Was it Spartacus? There's one of those big movies that he came in was like at the last second that he directed and whatever. Um, so they sort of like built their persona. Whereas maybe she just like kind of, jumped into it and thought, oh, I need to like do these crazy things because I saw this happen. That's my theory, at least. We all know your theory is that you're just sexist. <laughs> exactly. Just because she's a woman. That's right. I, be, I mean, you have to question if that played into how the studios treated her compared to if a man was doing this mm, back in the day. Maybe. But I don't know. Like, on your first... Well, it wasn't her first feature, but like... Doing um, the three cameras and that, like, for, I don't know, just, and then, then her, like, unwillingness to, to do uh, edits or to, like, turn in cuts and, like, hide yeah. the film reels to, to, like, keep the studios from editing. Like, she got, they sued her for Mickey and Nikki, didn't they? Yes, the film, uh, <laughs> she supposedly, uh, they wanted to take away the cut from her because it was in the editing suite for two years and she couldn't produce a cut that she was happy with because she was constantly re-editing it. And uh, it sounds like she's obsessive compulsive, like it literally excessive compulsive. Like she was like outside the edit suite, washing her hands 16 times and then come in to do one splice and then I mean, you know, wash her hands 16 times. The budget for Mickey and Nikki went well over because of all this stuff. It went from 1.8 million to 4.3 million. Yeah. Um, like we said, she was she couldn't like come to terms on an edit. It was shot in 1973. Still wasn't released three years later. So Paramount tried to sue her to get final cut back just where they could finally finish their fucking movie. <laughs> and there, yeah, there was like a rumor like you touched on that she hid a, re- a reel. Like she hid the reels so they couldn't have the complete film. So unless they brought her back, they couldn't finish the film. So they finally like just ah. 
it's like they fired her and then they rehired her or something. I, it was like that type of stuff. Like if you have zero track record to back that up, like why are they going to want to deal with you? Uh, f- yeah. Eventually Mickey and Nikki did release. Uh, it wasn't a cut that May was happy about, but I don't think Paramount gave a shit at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eventually, I guess she did approve her own cut of, the, of Mickey and Nikki that came out in 1985. But so with all this drama we've kind of been showing around Mickey and Nikki, it's easy to see why May was a red flag and why she didn't direct again for a while. But uh, I mean, but then she's she, still a respected screenwriter. Yeah. Though. So that was a big. Then she wrote Heaven Can Wait. And uh, everything was all right again. The film was nominated for nine Oscars and earned $80 million. And May has a quote, which is very telling, which says, Hollywood doesn't care what you did as long as you're making money for them. Very true. I think we can clearly say that's very true in today's day and age. So, you know, then here comes Warren Beatty. And, you know, with uh, he's coming off of uh, the movie Reds, for which he won an Oscar for. Mm-hmm. And that uh, May helped him do some writing on. And he felt indebted to her. And so he says, I want to give you a movie again. And this time we're going to let you have full control. And then they get Hoffman too, because Hoffman similarly felt credit to May because May did an uncredited rewrite of Tootsie. So he felt obligated and he was like, sure, I'm on board too. And uh, to me that that's, I don't know, like, I just wonder about that. Like, were they all just really that that good of friends with May? Like that they're like, oh, I'm gonna put my neck out on the line for her to direct another film. Or was there did she like have dirt on them? Like <laughs> she have like some secret photos of Warren Beatty. You don't want getting out. Warren Beatty Baton. Warren Beatty Baton. She had some pictures of Warren Beatty <laughs> Baton. Yeah. Little casting couch. Uh, she had some pictures of Dustin photos. I was gonna say Hoffin, but that's not really a thing. Hoffin <laughs> some paint. Hoffin <laughs> some coke. Uh, well, I or this, I don't know. I mean, maybe they just really did like her work and really liked her. To it just seems. I think they just wanted to help somebody they thought was talented. Yeah, and I think Warren Beatty honestly felt like the studios were just the producers were just never uh, nice enough to her. Didn't give her what she wanted. So he's like, I'll be the producer. Yeah. And I think that bite him in the butt a bit. I think it's yeah, maybe a little bit of a little bit of arrogance on his part. He probably thought he could he could control her. Yeah, they were friends and were, were they romantically involved? I thought I, I read that. In I don't think trivia so. at one point, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not. I didn't see anything about it. If so, maybe I'm confusing my movie trivia. But either way, they took this to a production head guy. We're back to guy guy McElwain. At a uh, oh, Columbia, uh, 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 Isabella Johnny and Warren Beatty were dating at the time. That's what oh, I remember reading. Exotic. But Columbia was pretty weary of this project, like we kind of stated uh, way earlier in the expectations, because of you know May's track record ten years ago. But uh, um, McElwain said that Beatty's track record was likely 100% in terms of how his pictures performing at this was time. It 100% or 1,000%? Oh, sorry, 1,000%. That's uh, exaggerating. So uh, so he greenlit the project because he's like, if I don't, they're just going to walk across the street. Yeah, somebody, Warner Brothers, somebody's going to take this. And uh, this decision to greenlit this project would end up getting McElwain fired. Mm. 
He would end up losing his jo- he would end up losing his job one month after the production ended on Ishtar, and uh, he was replaced by a guy named David Putnam. Uh, he would become the new production head of Columbia, and this is going to be a big deal. As Putnam is going to have a very different view about Ishtar and <laughs> how he treats the film, and that's gonna we'll touch more on that in a bit. But first, um, let's talk about uh the filming of this movie. This movie started filming in October of 1985. So two, two years before it comes out and, uh, it filmed in North Africa. Political tensions at this point were really high. There's Israeli warplanes supposedly bombing areas out there. Um, uh, some Palestinian forces hijacked a cruise ship and Mm -hmm. murdered an elderly American during this time. Uh, Moroccan military was fighting guerrilla fighters during this time. And there was concern that Hoffman would be kidnapped by Palestine terrorists. I assume just Hoffman because of because he's, uh, he's Jewish. Yeah. And then um, there's like there was locations they filmed at where they actually had to check for landmines before shooting. <laughs> and there's a there's a lot of interesting uh, production stories and drama and stuff written. Like uh, here's a here's a story you'll probably like, Steve, with your little producer hat. Oh yeah, let me put that on. Hold on. Where what do I do with it? Damn it, Steve, oh, that's a penis hat. I only have the penis glasses, too. <laughs> Fuck. So uh, the shoot was costing even more than most filming done on location in New York. Because uh, when they were filming in Morocco, they were using an Italian camera crew. <laughs> because the, the head, uh, the, the DP was a, was a Italian guy. And uh, he had actually won an Oscar for shooting Reds. So they wanted to use Reds, the movie that Warren Beatty uh, did before this. Right. So they wanted to use him. So when they came back later to shoot in New York, because some of this film was shot in New York, since they had that Italian crew already, New York Union Rules says they have to have New York guys too. So they had to hire a whole standby crew of New York guys to literally just stand around just because that's what union... So they're unions required. So they're a lot of money. Paying two crews at this point. Man. I, I think I feel like the choice to have uh, Vittorio Storaro to shoot this, I think that was part of uh, it was also a mistake. Well, he actually came on because the original guy quit. Oh, they had somebody a, a, a different DP going to shoot this, and he quit right when filming was going to start. So mm. then I think Beatty must have been like uh, grabbed him because they worked together in Reds. Yeah, and they worked they worked together after that, but like all of his films are like these dramas and i feel like that was part of the reason the film felt so weird tonally is like his shooting style did not match up well for like the type of comedy they were wanting to make yeah there's the the, i saw that people saying that how uh he had never he this is actually the first comedy film he actually right like he did apocalypse now he was on that uh uh, and it working. is a, it he's is a, alive. it is a know? different camera. It is a different style in how you shoot something. Yeah, and and, and you kind of mentioned this earlier. There's another story of she shot a there's a, a performance scene, and uh, May would end up shooting the scene fifty times, fifty takes mm-hmm. with three cameras rolling, mm-hmm. and she would just say, "Let's do it again." Yep. Let's do it again. And they're saying she really wasn't given much direction, like you mentioned earlier. Yep. And uh, th- it was, I think it was this scene where where this uh, this article quotes that uh, Hoffman and and Warren Beatty actually finally started to show their impatience with May. Uh, they were perfectionists, you know, themselves a bit, being as big actors as they were. And it said they were on pretty good behavior. Um, 
though. So Hoffman was actually like, there's stories of him on set and he was uh, memorizing the names of extras and being nice to everybody, joking with the crew, making riddles. But the the pace wore them out because this film was stretching. Yeah, Um, I mean, you're shooting that much? Like, that's going to wear everybody out. There's a... There's a quote, uh, an anonymous crew member, they didn't quote him, he probably do not want to get fucking fired, Right. Uh, was stated about working on the set of this movie. He said, I think that if Elaine could have it her way, she'd still be shooting this movie. <laughs> That's what makes me sound, it sounds like the, the the OCD thing, just like never, I don't like, it's beyond me. Uh, the, the, like the lack of making a decisive decision and especially when you get into the into post-production and like never having a finished cut when we talk about um how long they shot um the the shoot was supposed to go like this this is the original plan eight weeks of shooting in morocco and they were going to start in august of 1985 and they're going to take a couple weeks off after the eight weeks in morocco and then shoot two and then shoot six weeks in new york and boom they'd be done by christmas yeah but it did not go that way. They didn't end up starting until October, you know, after their original August pitch. And then, because uh, preparations took longer than they expected, uh, May was making changes to the script. They lost their cinematographer, as we mentioned. <laughs> um, so the, the shoot moved slower and slower, and they ran into issues. And there was a a guy named Mac Brown who uh, was monitoring the budget for the film. And he told New York magazine that this was the kind of movie where no one would say, sorry, we can't afford that. Oh yeah. That's a, that is a very bad sign. There's a a fun example that they, they, uh, they gave in that point. They said there was a camera repair piece that they needed. uh, And the piece was in the U S they needed to get it to Morocco where they were. But they were afraid that it would be lost or, or, or detained in customs if they just shipped it. So they paid for a ticket, put the coordinator on the... They paid to fly somebody <laughs> from New York to Morocco and then put that bump in a hotel room for a week just to get this part to them. You know, making the cost much greater. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, so like originally they wanted to be done... Like I said, by Christmas, they were still filming come late February. And that's when production finally went on break. They weren't even done yet. They're already two two months pretty much past schedule. And uh, they go on break. Rumors start to spread while they're on break that uh, Columbia was shutting the movie down. <laughs> but uh, if they, only they did not. They eventually finished up and they finally wrapped up uh, final shooting on May March 24th. So, you know, so, you know, like right before Christmas. Yeah, right right so, around uh, Christmas. That's, that's the Chinese Christmas. Uh, another <laughs> fun bit. The crew had a pool going where they all, th- <laughs> yeah, they all threw this. $5 on in a bet to see what day the production would finally wrap because they all knew they were going over. Yeah. And the winner ended up being the production accountant. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, I feel like the production accountant would have a very good guess as to when they'll be done. That's why the crew is yeah, not supposed like, to be oh, too man, happy come with the winner. On. That would be the that would have been Jack King, production account according to IMDb. So Jack, if if this is a true story, give us a tweet give and let us, us know. It report pod, uh, on the twitters, uh, or G Mac Brown. Uh, and, he was the unit. And if you're manager. dead, that tweet will be more impressive. <laughs> yeah, if you tweet us from beyond the grave. Uh, so now the yeah. film is shot, 
and uh, but the studio there's there's a lot more to go in this drama. Uh, remember when I said that uh, David Putnam was hired as the new Columbia chief following uh, the firing of old guy? No, I don't remember that. Oh well, let's go back and uh, <laughs> let's <we're> rewind. Going... <laughs> well, anyway, Putnam immediately distanced himself from this film when he got hired, and he actually st- stated when he uh, when he hired on that he there was an agreement that he would not be responsible for the release of this picture. Pretty much, he would not be involved, saying that it was all too common for new incoming studio heads to be blamed for films that were negotiated by their predecessor. He was quoted as saying, I don't want to be guilty of this. Which I think that's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't want to come into a new job and like get blamed for your old... Your old boss's you know, the person you're replacing. decisions. Yeah. But I think Putnam would take this too far. First of all, the film drama obviously did not end when it went to the production room. Because as we know... The production room? The production room... <laughs> As it went into the editing room okay. in post-production. Because as we know, we mentioned earlier, May was uh, uh, known to be able to obsess over an edit forever. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, one executive was quoted as saying that May would be happiest if she could keep Ishtar in the editing room forever and never release it. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. She should, could be still editing that movie today if uh, if they would have let her. The Ishtar rushes, by the way, Steve, were 108 hours long. <sighs> rushes being the raw footage before editing. It's just so yeah, the shooting ratio was 61 to one, meaning they shot 61 times as much uh, footage as needed to have the completed length. So like, if you shot, if you had a two-hour movie and you shot two to one, you would have shot four hours of footage. So they had a two-hour movie and they shot. 61 to 1, so 108, whatever, 108 hours. Like, it's just an absurd amount of extra footage. It's just excessive. And it costs money because film wasn't cheap, for one. You have to process all that shit, develop it, um, and that takes time and money. Uh, even in today's, in today's digital world, like, if you shot 61 to 1, depending on the camera you're shooting on, it'll cost you a fuck ton of money because you need a fuck ton of giant hard drives to offload the footage onto. So regardless of like the time it takes to be efficient on your shooting ratio is very important. It's got to be a scary thought when you know you have that much footage in a lane may in an editing room. <laughs> yes, it's like it's oh, just God. more options for her. Yeah, that's the thing. It's that and and that's where it comes from. Usually it comes from like an insecurity and then like not knowing what you want and not knowing if you got what you needed. So you get all these things and you think, oh, I've got all these options. It's like a security blanket, just a really expensive security blanket made out of celluloid. The studio obviously probably wanted to have cut of this because they're probably very scared of the idea of May having all that footage and God knows how long it would be until they got a cut. (laughs) But Warren Beatty fought to let May have a cut, have her cut of this film. Because at this point, Beatty was also just pissed (laughs) at Putnam. Mm. because like we said, Putnam came in, he said, I'm not going to be guilty of this movie, which if that was the only stance he had, fine. But he ended up taking that further. And there was a lot of people saying that Putnam was leaking negative information to the media about this film. Cause this, which is, I think is wild. This guy, this guy wants to bury the guy who had the job before him so badly. 
and he also has beef with with uh, Beatty and the stars, and uh, that he's gonna purposely fucking hurt the company he's now overseeing right. just to prove his point, just so he could be like, hey, it wasn't my decision. I didn't make that bad move. It's like, you're still the guy in charge, you idiot. Like, if the company goes down, <laughs> right. yeah. it's still going to look bad on you. Seems like a great career move to be like, yeah, told you so. Should have hired me six months ago. Right. This wanted to happen. <laughs> so, so Beatty reportedly refused to show Putnam a final cut. And uh, after the film came out, uh, filmmaker Mike Nichols, who you mentioned uh, yes, earlier, Steve. the director of... Uh, the graduate. And he's also a longtime friend and collaborator of May. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually stated that he thought that, that, that this film, Ishtar, was a prime example of studio suicide, implying that Putnam deliberately sandbagged the film due to grudges with Hoffman and Beatty. And uh, there was actually a, an article written back when Putnam was first promoted to the new head of Columbia which it declared like he was like an indie like producer coming into the scene and like th- he got this big job at the studio and like his whole like he was real gun ho about taking down inflated star salaries and package deals and like he didn't like people like Beatty that were like these multiple like, he was like the studio guys like studio system guy yeah like big contracts and big you know lots of power wearing di- lots of different hats getting paid for each of those hats and like so Putnam like wanted to take down people like this, and he had a grudge against people like this. His, uh, I, I think, his one of his claims to fame before he became the studio executive. He was one of the producers on Chariots of Fire. So, like, you have Putnam trying to bury this movie before it can't comes out by giving bad press, just to fucking try to make himself look good. Even though if he was had any sort of long sight, this obviously isn't going to pay out for him either. <laughs> but and then like even more so. Like the head of marketing at Columbia knew this was not going to go well with all this crap surrounding it, all this bad press. And he was like, listen, we need to not market this movie so much right. because this movie is not going to make money. This back. is maybe my favorite tidbit of this entire thing. <laughs> and then Columbia was so worried about upsetting <laughs> Hoffman and Beatty, though, that they instead ignored that guy's advice and marketed it more. They spent even more money. <laughs> Like, no, it's okay. We'll just put up a bunch of more yeah. posters. <laughs> <laughs> Ego trumps logic yes, in Hollywood. Absolutely. Is what that head of marketing said. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of good, a lot of things that they spent money on and like reasons they should have maybe calmed down a little bit. Uh, one of the things was they could have shot most of the desert stuff in the US and it had been cheaper and safer and cheaper. Uh, but what was unknown what, until now uh, for our listeners is that Coca-Cola was the pr- the main, the only owner or the primary owner of Columbia Pictures at this point. I don't. I know they're at least the primary. Yeah, yeah they like they were the controlling owner. They may have just owned the entire thing outright, and they had money in Morocco that they couldn't repatriate uh, in the U.S. So they just said, "Well, let's go to Morocco and we'll shoot there." We'll so we've got there. all this fucking money sitting in Morocco. Yeah. We'll just spend. We'll just use that to film in Morocco, even though it's going to cost more. <laughs> yes. Instead of just shooting in, which is know. funny because that decision also m- maybe led to them getting the Italian crew 
mm. because they're already over there. And yeah. that guy was an Italian, so he's like, well, let's just get some Italian crew. I know them. I work with them. They're mm-hmm. not as far as America. Right. And then that decision would fucking blow up in their face when they went back to New York. <laughs> yes. And they had to pay two crews. <laughs> yes. That was a lot of... just. I mean, I wonder if, though, that guy would have still been brought on because of his previous work with... And because the other DP dropped out. Probably, but maybe I'm just saying if they're already shooting in America, yeah. they wouldn't have flown an Italian crew in just at well, his request. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, so that, I always thought that was interesting that Coca-Cola was in the in the actual film business. I mean, you always think, oh, I go to the movies, I see Coca-Cola ads, you know, they're very synonymous with going to the movies and the theater experience, but... Did you know they actually tried to make movies and owned their own owned a major studio in Hollywood? I can't wait to see how this turns I out. I know, for amazing. Coca-Cola. I wonder where that went. After removal of the neck organs, excess soft tissue must. So we've talked about a lot of the various ways this went wrong, but uh, let's uh let's uh do some some what if speculation here in Steve's favorite segment, where we talk about um. Is there a way you could have averted this disaster? Could you have prevented this bomb, maybe? And if so, at what point? Um, I think it's pretty easy to figure out where they could have prevented this disaster. Um, they by off everything off-brand, off-brand version, off-brand cameras, off-brand clothes, yes, off-brand shoes, off-brand people, <laughs> off-brand people. What does that even mean? I could get you done some it. off-brand people. Should have done it with some puppets. Yeah. They should have given this to whole, Jim Henson. Whole movie puppets. Boom. All honestly, backdrops. Honestly, if the Muppets, if this was a Muppet film, I think it probably would have been pretty. The Muppets do Ishtar. It wouldn't have been like that much far off, right? Isn't the Muppets like half about them being in a band, trying to be music musicians, anyways? Yeah, this could have been about uh, what's Animals Band's name? Uh, oh. Something Express? No, Starlight. Starlight oh. Express. Isn't that a musical? Oh, yeah. Someone's real pissed at us right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. Somebody's like, sitting in there. Oh, my God. Somebody's fucking you in the Muppets. Did you call this, you fucking idiot? <laughs> Did you ever watch the fucking Muppets? You got to tweet us at God. AT Report Pod and tell us why we're fucking idiots about the Muppets. My sister, my my one of my sisters will know this probably. And she's like, she's, oh, my God. She's screaming at she's you She's right throwing now. the phone across the room right now. Get, she's fever, feverishly tweeting about how you're an idiot, and she's obviously Animal's band name is blank. Is uh, I'm gonna just go with Starlight Express. I'm pretty sure that that's a stage musical, but uh, I'm gonna go with it. Anyways, uh, yes, yeah, so they should have just done this entire movie with oh yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, with um, <laughs> with puppets, and that would have solved all the problems, just like the guys from South Park learned. Which is not true, actually. The puppets were a giant pain in the ass. Um, no, I think the biggest thing would have been just to be like, "All right, Warren, we want to give your good friend Elaine a, a you know a chance at you know making a film and being successful, but like we're gonna have to put some restraints on her because of the past issues she had with her project." And I think a combination of Beatty wielding wielding his big gear uh, a little too much uh and like forcing them to just give her free reign and maybe like yeah. just not having the maybe having a little bit of blinders on with like hey maybe I shouldn't let her and I think he realized this once they got into production he's like oh fuck I really fucked this up um I should have I should have not let them. But I'll never admit it. Yeah and then well it was like even the stories of like how they got into arguments 
and she would just like storm off and he was like sort of left to direct the film anyways and that she would have been fired in any other circumstance but the whole point of doing this movie was to give her the opportunity and so he couldn't just be like ah oh, she needs to be fired like i have to just tough it out so i think he realized that so i think if if they would have just god maybe co-direct it like put somebody else in there to like I don't know. I think I don't think, think that would have worked either. Th- I think she had to have that control. I don't think she would have done it. Yeah. I think she needed like she she you couldn't have, you shouldn't have given her free reign. That obviously caused huge issues with the movie. Um I know there's like a bit of like you got to let the artist be the artist. Yeah. But as much as like people hate hate to to give this kind of credit or whatever is like this isn't your money that you're playing with when you make right. these movies. Yeah. It's like, so at some point you have to have some responsibility for the millions of dollars these financiers are putting mm-hmm. up. Yeah. If the studio, if it was just her, if she had independently like was wealthy and said, I'm going to use my million dollars to make this movie then and shoot all fucking do all day. Want, <laughs> yeah. Then that's like, as long as the checks are clearing, people will show up and like, they don't give a fuck if your movie ever finishes. But you know, we have the studio, we have Coca-Cola, our, our most beloved of American institutions, Coca-Cola, uh, wanting to you know not go bankrupt. So um, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot at play, and you have. So this is why they had to do Coke, new Coke. This was yeah, this is what caused new <laughs> this Coke. Is the, it all comes this is together. The truth. This is it. We're piecing this together. Um, but uh, as much as like yeah, May was definitely uh, something you had to you had to do something about to prevent this movie from failing. Um, I also don't put this all in May. I put this on Columbia too. Yeah. Or more accurately, I put this on Putnam. Because, mm. I mean, he fucking seemingly purposely sank this movie to prove an idiotic point. And that point, by the way, that he was trying to make cost him his goddamn <laughs> job. I mean, he recovered. I think maybe he just wasn't cut out to be a studio head to begin with. It's a shame, though, because I feel like in the, in the history books, this is really going to be on May. And uh, yeah. I feel like Putnam deserves some of this blame. Maybe. Because um, remember, remember, and I'm bringing it back here. Remember way back when I reminded you about how this was only in week theaters for four weeks? Yeah, because of the explosive projectors the ex- that they, they sent to the theaters. Yeah, Putnam sent those projectors. Sent explosive projectors. It was all an inside job. So many theaters burned down. Projectionists died. It was just a horrible summer. But I'm saying the studio pulled this movie. Four weeks, they're like, this is bombing terribly. Get it out of there. Yeah. And, I mean, we discussed, we kind of got into, in a previous episode, about how leaving it in doesn't always mean you're going to make more money. Right. But. At this time and this point in time. But it's like, what is, I mean, what does it have to hurt? It's more, it's just, I just, I feel like I agree with Mike Nichols when I feel like this was a studio suicide. Yeah. And we are all fucking witnesses, baby. I don't know. I mean, it did drop below a million in that fourth week. Maybe that was the threshold. They're like, ah, fuck it. Let's just take it but, out. But also, it could have got pulled from a lot of theaters. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, did they have the theater counts on, they, they, on how that worked? Because it could have, like... It was uh, it was in... It was still in over a thousand... It was actually in over a thousand theaters all four weeks. So it yeah. had a steady so theater It was count. just a pretty, pretty low... Just real sad decline but you got to remember that's also there's so much media coming out talking about how this movie is going to be a huge piece of shit how over budget it was yeah and that was putnam leaking shit to the media supposedly allegedly 
Don't sue me, Putnam, wherever you fucking are. Uh, and that was the only film Can't that Columbia had blood out from a stone at that point too. Um, yeah, so it's not like they're going to protect like, another movie. But but like Paramount had uh, Beverly Hills Cop, which was in its third weekend, and The Untouchables was its first weekend that came out with eighteen million. I think if you look if you look at what was out at that point, they were just like, forget it. I I, I mean I think that was the justification probably just be like. You have Harry and the Hendersons and the Untouchables that both just premiered. Both did pretty good money. Beverly Hills Cop is like, is already at eighty nine million dollars in three weeks, and they're just probably like, it's too, it's too crowded. It's too far gone. Yeah, we're already we're at but, number nine. But if if you if there is none of this negative news, if Putnam would have been a, I get an honorable new head and not just tried to kick the guy going out the door, and he would have tried to protect this movie and promote it put it in theaters longer do you think it would have done better do you think it would have like not had that i because i i feel like the narrative of failure was already written yeah that's printed true. and published they hadn't, before this first if they hadn't sabotaged theaters. so much of it ahead of time maybe it does a little better yeah maybe the people aren't like oh this is gonna be a fucking but guess what putnam you're fucking right you told them way to go buddy record the amount of blood accumulated in body cavities ishtar was a historic bomb it's one of the big ones, people. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> but uh, how did the fallout of this bomb affect the people involved, Steve? Um, let's uh, well, let's talk. Let's talk about our our stars. Um, Dustin Hoffman didn't really didn't really affect him too much. He uh, Hoffman, uh, yeah, I don't think Ishtar really slowed him down at all. I mean, he followed up, freaking. Uh, Ishtar with Rain Man, <laughs> which he won an Oscar for, allowing him to wave his Oscar around like Men in Black's Neuralizer and say, Ishtar, what? Yeah, no, it's like, oh, what? It's, there were no Razzies back then, but I think he might have might have won a Razzie for Ishtar. Um, I mean, uh, Rain Man won four Oscars, um, and then in 91, he starred in uh, Steven Spielberg's Hook, yep. Captain Hook. Yep. And then he's been was films in like Outbreak, Sleepers, Mad City, Sphere, all through the nineties, varying Outbreak. in success. Yeah, um, and he stayed busy to this day. We all still know Hoffman. Yeah, he's still doing a lot of supporting roles these days now. Uh, actually, last film I saw Hoffman one in was The Mirrorwitz Stories on Netflix, and I thought he was really good in it. I don't even know what that is. Another interesting side effect is. Uh, is Steve's good old favorite American institution, Coca-Cola. No. What happened? They decided to expand their studio efforts, right? Ishtar did so, did so well <laughs> that they're like, let's put all their money in movies. Yeah, they just they, Except, they said, we're getting out of the soda business. There's no future in this. Americans are getting too fat. Yeah, no, what happened? What happened to Coca-Cola? What did they do? Well, uh... They got the fuck out of the movie business. <laughs> They're like, all right, we're going to just stick to selling in the theaters, concession stands, no more putting the movies on, they, making them. They spun their, inter- their their entertainment holdings into a separate company called Columbia Pictures Entertainment, and it, which they held 49% of the stock of. And then two years later, they sold Columbia to Sony. <laughs> and that's how Sony became up owners of Columbia. And to this day, Sony just killing the game right yeah sony just they're doing great yeah don't look up sony's box office in info 
and uh, late. And before getting into the other actors and uh, uh, the director, I just want to I want to jump back to Putnam. I want to tie up this loose end here. Oh man, uh, because uh, Putnam's approach of shitting all over this mo- of this uh, his own studio that he was the head of, <laughs> shockingly, did not go well. You mean they promoted him, right? They did. They promoted him right out the fucking door. <laughs> He came into Columbia in 1986 on a, and got signed. A, he had a three-year contract. He made it 13 months into that contract before they were like, get the fuck out of here, you piece of shit. Wow. You I dummy. Mean, you know, I feel like there's an inherent risk to being a studio executive uh, that you're going to be on the chopping block pretty easily and pretty quickly. So maybe he just really didn't give a fuck. Maybe, but... It, it, can it look great when you come come in trying to look like a conquering hero? And yeah. Then Thirteen months later, they're like, "Oh, by the way, uh, we moved your office. <laughs> it's in the fucking alley." Exactly. <laughs> maybe and that maybe that was Coca Cola's fault. You know, like who made the decision to bring him in to head the studio? Like, who's maybe he was a terrible choice, even if Ishtar wasn't sitting on the in the the slate. Like maybe in the interview he said, "Fuck Pepsi." <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. He showed up in a in a Coca Cola hat and he's just drinking a bottle of Coke. It's like oh, I'm ready for this. Let's do this. Warren Beatty. We said Hoffman didn't really get affected. Uh, Warren Beatty had a ton of pull before Ishtar. So despite uh, his heavy association with this film, uh, Beatty didn't really seem slowed down by Ishtar's failure. At least uh, at first, he followed it up with uh, Dick Tracy in 1990, which Hoffman was also in, by the way. Hmm. Um, Dick Tracy was a big hit. It earned uh, it earned uh, 163 million on a 46 million dollar budget. All right. After that, he made Bugsy, which was nominated for ten fucking Oscars. Wow. I don't. I don't. I don't think I've seen that. And then, uh, but then Beatty's career took a nosedive again. And in 1994, he did a remake um. of The Love Affair, which he starred, produced, and wrote. The movie bombed. Four years later, he directed, produced wrote and starred in Bullworth, which had a limited release and nearly earned back its production budget. That's his known for number one on IMDb. Really? Bullworth. Yeah. Well, he did get a screenplay a mistake, Oscar right? nomination for that. Oh, well. Still weird. Yeah. <laughs> Beatty, uh, I mean, Warren Beatty, uh, he tried to rally in uh, 2001 with a movie called Town and Country. And uh, this affected this movie pretty much killed his his career. Uh, he it was a massive bomb. It only earned ten million dollars on a budget of ninety million dollars. Oh man! And it's still they're still asking for nine ninety nine in standard def on Prime Video to watch it. I'm telling you, I'm, people. <laughs> the, the cojones. This is a serious issue. For some reason, these bombs are very hard to find. They're very to watch. hard to find. They're not streaming. You always have to like. Rent them somewhere. You think they'd be desperate to sell off the yeah. rights to these bad boys to make and some maybe money? Maybe Netflix is just like, nah, I don't want any of this shit. Amazon, like, they can literally just put it on there and say, oh yeah, we can just you can have it on Prime. But no, they want my nine ninety nine in standard def. <laughs> nine, <laughs> that's ridiculous for a movie that bombed. Yeah, in two thousand one. Oh, Gary Shandling's in this though. I like Gary Shandling. He's dead also. Man. Anyways, uh. Beatty wouldn't appear on the screen for 15 years after Town and Country bombed mm. until he attempted a, a late career comeback with Rules Don't Apply in 2016. 
which he starred, produced, wrote, and directed. Uh, Lily Collins is in that. It received mixed reviews. Uh, it was estimated to grow. It was estimated to gross three to five million in its opening weekend. Oh God, that's what they're projecting. He was trying to dick ride on the old like old Hollywood bullshit train that was started by. Well, the dick riding did La not La work. Land. It did not work, Steve. Uh, no, it did not. It he... earned it earned one point six million in its opening weekend, only grossed three point nine million overall. He played Howard Hughes also. And it, it cost twenty five million. He's actually being sued by one of the film's financers for rules don't apply. So the the final nail in the coffin may have been driven into Warren Beatty's career yeah. in that movie. Yeah. And uh, and now we all mostly go. Wasn't he the guy that mistook the La La Land and Moonlight envelope at the Oscars? At the at the two thousand one hundred and eight Oscars. That's the the nice typo they have. <laughs> the year twenty one oh eight. I get a little IMDb sometimes. Um, yeah, I think uh, he had his prime. And you know, so as as it goes, a lot of Hollywood stars they have their time when they're the big shot and they're the shit, and they have a bunch of hits and they can do whatever they want. And then times change. Yeah, and it's like when we go through it like this, you could think like, oh, you know, he really trails off, and but really, that was a long career. Kind of part of my wonder too is that maybe he's got still got that ego, like well, I'm Warren Beatty from Bonnie and Clyde and Reds, and uh, Dick Warren, Tracy. I hope Warren Beatty breaks into your room tonight <laughs> and you wake up and he, he's standing over you and you're like is that you born and he goes i'm here to bait you up and then he just starts beating the shit out of you <laughs> but why would he have heard this yet is it tonight um he has ears everywhere oh okay so moving on to have the... ears for a fucking successful film idea in 15 years then ha take that warren I, now when the news comes out that he dies tomorrow you're gonna feel really <laughs> bad Moving on to our last person to look at the uh, the effects and the fallout from this movie. Yeah. We go into the director and writer herself, Elaine May. Elaine May would never direct a motion picture again. Really? And this time, I'm serious. Long-time listeners will be really... Uh, hope that pays off really well for you. Right there. They're like, what? I don't get it. Was this a joke that went back several episodes? I don't get what they're referencing. <laughs> well, they weren't listening this long by most of those. Uh, it was nine years uh, before May even took another screenwriting credit following Ishtar when she wrote The Birdcage. Well, you know which what? Michael Nichols directed. Yeah, Mike Nichols did direct that. And that is literally one of my favorite movies. So she can do no wrong by me at this point. She wrote Primary Colors uh, soon after that, which Nichols also directed. Uh, she was nominated for an uh, Academy Award for that. And uh, oh, she hasn't been credited with any screenwriting, though, since 1999. She's doing some acting, though. Yeah, and she did a television documentary in 2016, which she directed, but that, that doesn't count as a film. <laughs> she also came out of retirement as an actor in 2016 to star in Woody Allen's miniseries on Amazon, Crisis in Six Scenes. That show, though, was not received well, with a member of the cast stating that they regretted to be a part of it. Which is not great when that's what your cast is saying. But if you think, well, that's pretty bad for a cast member to say, Woody Allen himself, before the sh his show was even released, was quoted as saying, it was a... <laughs> 
fucking <laughs> it was a a cat's show what a cat Woody Allen was quoted as <laughs> saying it was a catastrophic mistake I don't know what I'm doing I'm floundering I expect this to be a cosmic embarrassment wow cosmic embarrassment so not the best thing for <laughs> Elaine May to come try to do a little bit of an acting comeback with and also to be fair on uh, on the Birdcage, um, that was originally a, a play and a French film before it, so it's not like she was reinventing the wheel there. Wow, just yeah. kick so. her while she's down some more. I'm, uh, I'm going to take a little bit of that credit back. But when we're speaking about the after effects of uh, Ishtar, I think the legacy of this movie is something to really point out here, because uh, when Ishtar came out. It was reviled as one of the worst movies ever made. There's a ton of negative press. And there's a great quote by May where she said, if all the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a rich woman today. Ah, yes. And I think that's a great quote because I think this movie does have a really negative reputation. I I, I've, I mentioned to some people leading up to this that uh, I watched Ishtar and people are like, uh, I hear it sucks. Or like, oh, that movie's awful. And I'm, But every time if you go, oh, have you seen it? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time on that. <laughs> um, Hoffman, who has said that he liked this film... Pardon me while I watch Napoleon Dynamite for the 15th time. I like Napoleon Dynamite. I fucking hate that movie, too. Hoffman, who said he liked uh, Ishtar, actually, and would do it again, had once stated similarly, similarly to May that he said most people he's met make a face when he mentions the name, but then admit they'd actually never seen it. <laughs> and. uh you know who one of these people were that mocked it but never saw it? Uh, um, me? No, you took no. too long. Gary <laughs> Larson. That's right. The creator of Far Side Comic Strips. Larson's, Larson actually once made a comic strip mocking Ishtar by showing it as the only VHS tape in a Hell's video store. <laughs> Larson would later come out and say that he'd made that comic without ever actually seeing the movie. And then he watched the film while he was on a plane and he had been entertained by it and regretted making the comic. And this is a direct quote from Larson. He said, there are many cartoons for which I should probably write an apology, but this is the only one which compels me to do so. (laughs) I do enjoy that story. Uh, Some other people who came out uh, in Ishtar's defense were saying they liked the movie are Quentin Tarantino, uh, Lena Dunham, uh, Joe Swanberg, Steve's favorite director, <laughs> uh, Edgar Wright, uh, they all praised the film. Uh, even more so, uh, acclaimed filmmaker Martin fucking Scorsese has reportedly called Ishtar one of his favorite movies. Hmm. I don't know if I trust that. But uh, you know what? I'm on, I'm on board. I like this Ishtar. Roger Ebert thought it was a terrible film. Roger Ebert also said that Freddy Got Fingered was the worst movie ever. And so we can't take anything he says seriously after that. What, do you think Freddy Got Fingered is a great film? Well, what, you don't? I don't, I don't know if I've ever watched <laughs> it, to be honest. Well, no. But, but I think uh, anybody who like, has ever mocked or said, like, oh, Ishtar, that movie's a turd. But if you've never actually watched Ishtar, I challenge you to, to actually watch it. Because yeah. I, uh, I think people would be surprised with this movie. I think its humor's odd. It's an oddball kind of comedy movie, but I think uh, more people might like it than you think. I think, yeah, I don't think you'll, it'll be as bad as you would expect it to be. Um, it is a, at a 4.2 on IMDb, so it's not We never, not we, great. 
never make it a point in this podcast to really recommend, like, be like, hey, this is our recommendation. But just because of, like, the the craziness and, like, the, the stigma surrounding this movie, I do think if you have a chance checking it out, it would probably I, be pretty yeah. cool. I feel like you should watch all the movies that we do, just so you have to suffer a little bit like we do. That completes the procedures for the medical legal autopsy. We've talked about a lot of stuff and delved into what went wrong and maybe how it could have been prevented. But let's uh, let's sum it all sum it all up in what I'm you asking. You having a stroke over there? Yeah. What I'm asking is for you to throw this <laughs> to cause of death. <laughs> what is the cause of death? I'm gonna say that i i'm gonna disagree on your cause of death i think i didn't even say my cause of death yet sir well i am um, i'm reading your mind uh what a, what is your cause of death sir i'm calling this death a, a stu- studio suicide me and mike i'm on board with old mike i think that uh yes mike? yes yeah, our mike friend nichols, mike our friend mike nichols oh. uh i think yes this movie was plagued with production drama and delays that led to an inflated budget but i think uh, when you self-sabotage your own fucking movie, your own company like Putnam did, just to kind of fuck over these people involved, it's a real dumb move. And uh, I mean, if he didn't have it out for this movie, if he didn't leak all this information and turn the tide against the film before it even came out, and I mean, there's a lot of accounts of people talking ill about this film before ever seeing it. So obviously there's a stigma that was, perp- you know, that was put out there by him. And uh, it also claim there's also some claims that critics were more than happy to help add to the stink of this film because apparently a lot of critics back then had beef with Warren Beatty, ah. who uh, had a reported quote high-handed way you, he's kind of, a dick. of treating the media. I think he's just kind of a dick. That's part of the reason he's not really doing much today. If uh, if Putnam hadn't purposely tried to make sure his film this film was a turd so that he could claim it wasn't his turd which smelled this bad, then uh, maybe the film, I think, wouldn't have had that stigma. It would have been in the theaters for more than four weeks, and it wouldn't have been such a big bomb. And we wouldn't be talking about it like we do today when it's one of the first things that come up when you think of box office. Well, stuff. all right, that's, a, that's all well and fair. But if they hadn't... Uh, I think still the cause of death was not having a tighter leash on Elaine May or having having the project be under more strict control. Because had uh, McElwain maybe not greenlit the project the way it was, he would have not been fired, and uh, Putnam never comes in to in the first place to then sabotage the movie. So I still think that they could have avoided this long before they even ever made it. And they just didn't because they were afraid of Warren Beatty. Afraid of his star power. I think that you have beef with Warren Beatty. I don't even know why I have a beef with Warren Beatty, but I'm starting to think that <laughs> there's a reason that everyone has a beef. You know who also has a beef with Warren Beatty? No, I don't. People made Moonlight. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I totally blame that in Faye. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at AT Report Pod. Smash those shares and likes, and if you throw in a tweet, Steve will send you a racist pic. And while you're on iTunes, don't forget to leave us a review, five stars preferably. Reviews show us your love, and we all just want to be, want to be loved. 
but don't stray too far. Next time, we'll throw another movie on the slab right here on The Autopsy. Yeah, this uh, it was two movies in a row in the desert with camels. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this two movies in a row in the desert with camels. Two movies in a row. Two movies in a row. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this camels seem like a son of a bitch. They're just like always making noise. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this camels seem like a son of a bitch. They're just like always making noise. Don't just grab the first one you see. Don't just grab the first one you see. Two movies in a row in the desert with camels. They just like always making noise. Yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this yeah, this. And then it's like, oh, they ate the camel.